Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to celebrate Earth Day today. We've invited three Utah riders to reflect on the environment for the occasion. Where are we with regard to the environment and the land we love? What progress has been made? What are the most pressing current problems? And uh, we're going to welcome in uh, Jana Richmond, author of The Ordinary Truth and uh, other books. Uh, Jana Richmond uh, was born and raised in Utah's West Desert, daughter of a small-time rancher and a hand-rigging Mormon mother, she writes in her biography. With the exception of a few misguided years spent in New York City trying to make a fortune on Wall Street, she's lived her entire life in the west of the 100th meridian. Jana Richmond, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we uh, welcome in as well uh, Stephen Trimble whose books include uh, Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in uh, America. Um, And uh, Stephen Trimble was uh, born in Denver. His family's base for roaming the West with his geologist father. After a liberal arts education at Colorado College, he worked as a park ranger in Colorado and Utah, earned a master's degree in ecology at the University of Arizona, served as director of Museum of the Northern Arizona uh, Press, and for five years lived near the San Ildefonso Pueblo, northern Mexico. I believe, uh, Stephen Tribble, you split your time nowadays between Salt Lake City and Torrey. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. That's just part of your biography, of course. And we welcome in uh, George Handley as well, professor of humanities at uh, Brigham Young University. Has uh, written uh, in his field, uh, I believe, uh, comparative literature. Also a very well-received book, uh, Home Waters. A year of Recompenses on the uh, Provo River. George Handley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So we're going to reflect on, on the Earth on this Earth Day. We're asking you as well, what's your favorite landscape and why? What do you get from the land, emotionally and spiritually? I just invite you to reflect on Earth Day. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. one 826 1495 uh, or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Let me start with you, uh, Stephen Trimble. Um, I don't know whether you do anything special for Earth Day, probably get more reflective, perhaps, on, on this particular day. I talk to you, Tom. That's what I do for Earth Day. Well, well that's good. That's uh, right. We've done this for a couple of years now. Yeah, we have. Uh, I, I did try to get more reflective, and I think about where we are and Mostly what I think about is what I can do and what I might write as a writer that will change the way people think and get, get the new word out there. Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting moment. It's, you know, it's a lovely time of year to think about those things, springtime, renewal. You know, there are a lot of world religions that, that mark this time of year in the same way and ask us to evaluate where we are in life and our relationships with each other and with the earth. Let me ask the same question to you, Jana Richmond, uh, and maybe phrase it this way, uh, Earth Day 2013 versus Earth Day 2014. Are there, are there some problems that have cropped up in the last year or, or good things that have happened that you're reflecting on? Uh, uh, that's a good question. I, I, um, I, I live, um, I'm speaking locally rather than globally. Um, as you know, I live in Escalante, Utah, and um, we've had some problems crop up in the last year. We've had uh, some energy exploration threats here and uh, recent oil spills into the into the monument. And so, yeah, but at the same time, uh, like Stephen, I, I do try to set aside some time on this day and 
spend some time alone wandering in the desert, which I do often anyway. Hmm. But um, it is a good time to reflect about who we are and what we're doing. And I want to fold in the question about favorite landscape, favorite land. And uh, some people may not may not understand, Jenna Richmond, uh, y- your love for the desert. You you grew up in the West Desert. You spent some time in the Sonoran Desert. Mm-hmm. You you love desert, um, I, apparently. I do. I love desert. <laughs> I'm a desert rat. Uh, it's a it's it's one of the most remarkable yet fragile landscapes. And you know, all of us here in Utah. Um, should love desert. We all live in a desert. So uh, we should all embrace that idea of desert and arid land. Hmm. Uh, wh- why? I want to follow up uh, there. Uh, because, because we have to live within the laws of nature, which we're, which we're not doing very well. But uh, if we're going to live in an arid landscape, we need to live within the laws of an arid landscape. And so if you don't like living in desert, Utah is not a good place for you. Mm-hmm. George Handley, I want to bring you in. Uh, you, I, I believe, grew up in Connecticut, did you? Yes. Uh, well, I was born in Salt Lake City, but mm-hmm. left when I was a young boy and, and was raised in Connecticut. And then uh, w- came back to Utah when you got the job at BYU. Is that what, what happened? Right, yeah, 1998, so I've been here for 16 years, but now I'm proud to say I've lived in Utah longer than any place else, so I'm, I'm, I'm home. So you have an interesting perspective of having grown up in the East. Uh, I imagine, uh, given where you ended up writing about the environment, uh, that loving the landscape there. Yeah, I did uh, grow up. With a, with a love for nature, I think it was a, a pretty normal thing, uh, so I don't think I was a standout in any way. I think I lived in a, in a pretty uh, uh, rural uh, outpost of New York City in Connecticut where, um, you know, there were creeks and, and uh, trails and, and beaches on the Long Island Sound where I spent a lot of my time just playing, and, um, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time until I read a little bit more about you know, the problems of nature deficit disorder, as it's known, and, mm-hmm. and just really am glad that I had such a carefree youth where I could I could do some free exploring in, in the woods. And you've obviously spent a lot of time along the, the Provo River, uh, you know, wrote your book about it, uh, A Year of Recompenses, so the, the, the different seasons and the, a lot of meditation about that. Is that where you still go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm a big believer in, in being, uh, you know, as faithful and attached as I can be to the local landscape. I mean, I love a lot of exotic and beautiful places, not only in Utah and elsewhere in the world, but, but I think, um, I, I think I've, I've got paradise right here. Mm-hmm. Stephen Trimble, I, I believe one of your favorite places is Capitol Reef National Park. Uh, that's true, Tom. Um, I was a ranger at Capitol Reef in the mid-70s, a terrifyingly long time ago. <laughs> but I, I think that we do connect with these landscapes that, you know, that each of us, the three writers on your program and each of us listening, we have a landscape where we just have a visceral connection. Uh, it may not be the landscape that you grew up in. You know, my wife, for instance, also grew up in New England and never really bonded with all of that greenery. And felt a little claustrophobic there. And when she came to Utah and first went to the Colorado Plateau and saw those 
expanses of slick rock and all that space, she connected. And it's, it's kind of surprising for someone from Boston. Uh, I grew up in the West, and I have exactly the same reaction. I love mountains. I love the Great Basin Desert. But there is no place in the world that makes me feel quite the way that, that those um, canyons of the central canyon country make me feel. And every one of us has that connection with a particular place that, that we fall in love with and that serves as our refuge and our, our source of restoration. I wonder if you could expand on that, that connection, especially through the prism of, of, of the experience of, of, of your wife. What, what was it, do you think, about those open spaces? You know, I can't speak for her. I can speak for myself. Um, you know, the Slick Rock country around where the Green and Colorado Rivers come together in the heart of Canyonlands National Park, that landscape moves up through mesas and side canyons to the rims of the plateaus that, that rim the inner canyon country. And I love it because it's so incredibly sculptural and rich in color. You know, as a photographer and mostly a color photographer, I respond to shapes and patterns and textures and color. And it's like just walking through a garden of sculpture when you take a walk down one of those canyons. And the contrast between the rock and patches of green and here and there the springs and, and creeks and flash floods. You know, the, the great writers of the Utah desert for decades and decades have written about that magic from Wallace Stegner to Edward Abbey to those of us who are out there trying to come up with new words today. You know, it's, it's, it's such a rich place to be, and it, there's constant variety. Uh, walking in the woods, to me, can, can be very soothing, but often it's kind of boring by comparison. You can't see out. You have to walk all the way up to the ridge to get a view. Um, you know, I, I love open space. I love views. I love light. Yeah. And being surrounded by deciduous forest is not a good place for any of those things. Earlier, uh, Stephen Trimble, you, you said that uh, on Earth Day you reflect and you, and you try to think about what to write. I think as you phrased it to, to, I don't know, you didn't phrase it this grandiose, uh, change the world, but to change people's minds. And I wonder, um, I was reading um, in, in that, uh, that great tome, uh, Wikipedia, um, so, the, you know, <laughs> but I think this is probably correct. Uh, Earth Day in America, founded by United States Senator Gaylord Nelson, as an environmental teach-in. So that was April 22nd, uh, 1970. My question is, is there, you have a, I don't know, a feeling of evangelizing on Earth Day? Not everybody sh- shares love for, for open spaces and, and for the land, uh, and there are conflicts in, in how we love the land. Uh, absolutely, I, I do. I think, you know, when you fall in love with a place, you want to protect it. And, uh, you know, Jana is working hard to protect the landscape around her home in Escalante, and George works on issues in Utah Valley, and we all work on issues that are bigger than those places. But it starts with the place that you care the most about. And as writers, uh, you know, we do end up feeling we have a certain responsibility, I think, uh, for those of us who are connected with landscape, to use our skills and see what we can do with them, uh, to write op-eds and to write letters to the editor and to write essays that try to articulate our love for a place and why we think the future of that place matters. You know, in Bargaining for Eden, I tried to to write about how we make decisions as communities about those places we love and how that plays out 
in the power structure of of the political landscape. And so I've I've almost always got an idea for an essay or an op-ed that I'm thinking about and adding to and working with and eventually then sending out and, and finding a place for it for publication. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll, I'll ask a similar question of uh, Jenna Richmond and George Handley. You just heard from Stephen Trimble right there. We've assembled uh, three distinguished uh, Utah writers to reflect on the environment and the land for Earth Day 2014. I've also asked them to select some passages from the, their works, and we're going to hear from those as well. And I'm inviting you to reflect on Earth Day. What are your thoughts? Where are we? What uh, progress has been made? Uh, what are your concerns? Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. would love to hear about the land you love, wherever that might be, and why you love it, what you get from it, uh, whether it's uh, the West Desert or Uinta Basin or Southern Utah, Northern Utah, or, or wherever you might be if you're not in Utah. Uh, you can also reach us by uh, email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More on this Earth Day following break. UPR explores what your home says about you in its new series, My Address Is. UPR reporters spoke with individuals from all walks of life about how their homes reflect who they are and to discuss close-to-home issues facing our friends and families. Our home was our family, and all we need to do is find a house to put it in. Dairy farming has been a good life for me. Tune in during All Things Considered to hear how your neighbors live with My Address Is. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week we look at the fastest route to happiness, and it just so happens to have a lot to do with our stomachs. And Jane Stern, what's up this week? Lynn, we've solved the conundrum of great deli meats and bad bread. Be sure to join us this week on The Splendid Table from APN. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and The Allergy Clinic with providers Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter and PA Lindsay Humes. Practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, 753-7880. It's Earth Day, of course, 2014. The first one was 1970, at least here in America. And on April 22nd each year, it's uh, time to reflect on the land, what it means to us, the Earth, where we are. That's what we're doing today with uh, three Utah writers. We have with us Jana Richmond, author of the novel The Ordinary Truth and other works. Stephen Trimble, whose books include Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America. And George Handley, author, among other works, of Home Waters, A Year of Recompenses on the Provo River. We're reflecting on the earth and the land, what it means to you. We're asking you what's your favorite uh, landscape and why, and what do you get from the land and, and nature. Uh, your reflections on Earth Day, we'd uh, love to get your perspective. The number is 1-800-826-1495. And it could range anywhere from um, poetry to politics. Um, everything is included. That's what we're talking about. Uh, that's the range we're talking about today, of course, on the program. Uh, you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com as well. Jenna Richmond, I wonder if I could get you to, to talk about uh, 
maybe current situation, which affects uh, your area in Escalante. We had a program not long ago on uh, proposed changes to the Antiquities Act from uh, Congressman Rob Bishop. Um, he uh, Currently, the president uh, has the power to unilaterally create a national monument. That's what happened with President Clinton and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Uh, Representative Bishop is proposing some reforms to that, and we had a vigorous discussion on this program. Um, and, and it reminded me that sort of the, the heated nature of, of what this can be. Um, it, it also reminded me, as uh, we heard from uh, Representative Mike Noel, uh, who, who can be, uh, you know, rather spicy. Um, but, uh, and perhaps he's a flawed messenger, but the message, uh, you know, that I get from, from that discussion is that he does very well represent the attitudes of many in that area, I think who have the attitude, uh, let's not lock up that land. Let's, let's you, know, you, you know, we don't need to protect so much land. Um, so that's a long preamble, but I, I just wonder what your reflections have been on, on that debate. Uh, well, that's, that's an excellent question. I, I think that um, Mike Noel keeps getting reelected, so obviously he does... Um, represent some opinions down here, but I think we're starting to see a shift in that. Um, you know, I loved, I, I sat here and listened to Steve Trimble's description of the land down here, the, the Slick Rock Canyons and the vistas and the, the beauty of it, and, and he sees that, I could have never described it that way, he sees that with, with, the, with the artistic eye of a remarkable photographer. And for me, when I walk out into those canyons, it's more of a gut feeling. It's more of a kind of a, um, it's the place that I feel closest to the earth. It's the place that I feel closest to my wild self. And, 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 and so I argue for protection of the land because that spiritual connection to the land, I don't think that's a luxury. I think that's a necessity in our lives. And I think we have to be able to feel that. And if we use every piece of land, and, there, uh, and I, I, I bring in that word use, we constantly talk about the uses of the land. And, and that's what we're always arguing about down here. And it can become really nasty. Um, you know, when I, I was a little surprised uh, when, the, when they wanted to do seismic testing in the town of Escalante and I was a little surprised at how quickly I jumped into action. I'm a, I'm a writer. I usually sit back and observe and listen and write. I'm not really a community activist, but it just seemed so absolutely wrong for this area, um, so threatening, that I couldn't help but jump into action. And there was a lot of support for that action. Uh, so I think we are seeing some shift, but it's it's still very difficult down here. You know, I, I live here because I love this land, not because it's the warmest and most welcoming place to live. It's not. Hmm. Um, so I, I think that we are beginning, we're just forcing, kind of forcing the conversation. And I'm glad to see that we're just kind of forcing the conversation. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of nervousness. There's a lot of kind of bitterness, um, but it's still a conversation. Hmm. We have a caller. Uh, let's go to uh, Tom in Vernal next. Glad you called, Tom. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I uh, 
I just wondered whether or not my experience is something that other people resonate to. I The first landscape I loved was in eastern Kansas in uh, an area called the Flint Hills, which is really quite lovely in a kind of a humble way. And we had a, a ranch out there, and I'd go out there and noodle around as a kid. And as I grew older, I sometimes would go out there by myself. I'd be the only human being on this landscape. But I started noticing that I never really felt like I was alone in this one particular place. And I ultimately concluded that it was like this this whole landscape that I had learned so well, that I had learned intimately all the different little uh, woods and streams. It was like this gigantic personality, and I did not feel like I was really alone when I was there. And I haven't experienced that kind of uh, sense many places, but I do currently now in the, the canyons and the mountains outside of Vernal, the places I go to again and again and again. It's like you have company. And I wondered whether or not it's, it's akin to the way, you know, uh, a Cheyenne Indian would have felt about their home, a place that you knew so well that it was like a, like a person. So that's my comment. Thanks, Tom. That's 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 very poetic of you. Thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, George Handley, I wonder uh, uh, we haven't gone to you uh, in a little while. I wonder if uh, go to you first on this one. Do you share some of those feelings? Oh, I think that that was really well said, um, and and that was the, the fundamental impulse I was responding to when I wrote Home Waters. I think uh, I think. Um, intimacy with where you live is really crucial to developing uh, a sense of care uh, that is likely to last uh, into future generations and, and be effective um, because you have to know the character of the land. And, and, and in order to know the character of the land, uh, as, as the caller indicated, you, you, have, to, you have to do some um, reconnaissance. you got to move around and you got to experience it through the senses and and develop a relationship to it and i think i think it's very appropriate to call it a kind of companionship um it's a kind of friendship i mean i i I use the word faithful and loyal in in relationship to my own landscape i do think of it as a kind of committed relationship and i've got to uh, I, I can't just uh, enjoy the pleasures of where I live uh, and assume that I can do so um, without cost or without sacrifice or without work. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not a it's not a. The problem is we're very entertain, entertainment driven, and so we think of pleasures, whether they're recreational or otherwise, as things that we can sort of. Um, you know, like a vending machine, that put some money in and push a button and get it. And and yet, it's it's really better to think of it as a as a relationship that's that you're trying to work at over the long term. And that that involves sacrifice, and that involves enough humility to recognize that maybe sometimes the way you love the land is actually harmful to it. Um, you know, Wallace Stegner said you can love a place and still be dangerous to it, and I think, I think it's uh, you, you're hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't love nature. I think the issue isn't uh, that we don't love nature. I think the issue is that we can't uh, we can't listen to one another enough uh, to understand why we love it the way we do, and and how we can find common ground in that love to protect it for everybody. I think that's really the key. And and going back to something that Stephen said earlier, I think that's the role that that the arts play, whether it's photography or poetry or novel writing or essay writing, um, 
or music. You know, these are ways of celebrating that intimate relationship that the caller described, and I think that that helps find that common ground before we enter into the political fray, because if we forget that common ground, then I think we, we too easily convert other people into our enemies, and we just then dialogue breaks down. So the, the arts can, can be a way of speaking and listening to each other? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's, the, that's always the hope, right, that, that, that any writer or any artist has, that, that, that what they feel on a very personal level and what they've cultivated as a sensibility to the landscape can be transmitted to others. You know, I think the most famous example, at least in British literature, is William Wordsworth's relationship to the Lake District. I mean, this is a man who hiked every every corner of that area and, and devoted so much poetry and prose to its beauty, and he, he wanted nothing more than to transmit that to other people, also knowing that if a lot of people are going to love the same place, they're going to have to figure out a way to love it in a way that is sustainable. Um, you know, that's the big test, right? Mm. Is whether or not we can learn to love it and not love it to death. Right. If you just joined us, we're uh, we're reflecting on the land, on the environment, on the earth, on this Earth Day, 2014. We're talking with George Handley, whose works include Home Waters. You heard from him right there. Jana Richmond whose uh, books include The Ordinary Truth, and Stephen Trimble, whose works include Bargaining for Eden. You're welcome to join us, as did Tom Invernal. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We're interested what your favorite landscape is and why, and what does the land do for you? Um, I've asked each of our writers to uh, prepare a tour uh, a one or two uh, brief passages uh, from their works, or it could be from, from other writers. We'll get to that. But uh, first, uh, Jenna Richmond, I was uh, intrigued by a phrase, and I want to follow up. You said that uh, going out in the land helps you reconnect to your wild self. I wonder if you could expand on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I think that's important because it, it in turn, it turns it turns it connects us to the land and it connects us to ourselves and it um it's a cycle which is all of nature is so uh it's it's an it's important to me in my life to be able to do that on a fairly regular basis and i think you i don't think you need you know 1.9 million acres of national monument in order to do that although i'm unbelievably thankful to have it you know, I think you can do that in a city park. I think you can do that in a lot of ways um, in in a in a life. But I think it's important to do it because it um, it places us in nature, part of nature, in instead of standing apart from it and trying to figure out how we can control it and mold it to our needs. Mm. Stephen Trimble, uh, I. Uh... My mind flashed to Marcel Proust for, for some reason. I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, because I've been wondering if, if some people are predisposed to, to, to really connect with nature and want to get out into it. Marcel Proust famously you know, spent a lot of time in bed <laughs> writing, writing his works. He was fine, just the landscape of the mind, in his room. And I don't know if some people are, you think are predisposed or if we all have that sort of that, that need. I think we all do have that need, Tom. Um, you know, E.O. Wilson famously described that as biophilia. You know, we have a 
genetic connection with the rest of the living world. Uh, some I've, I've been hearing a lot of of connections between what the caller Tom said so beautifully and what George and Jana said about the sort of sequence of events we go through in our lives that that ground us in that wildness and in, and in place. You know, Tom when he called in talked about noodling around as a kid in the Flint Hills and then going back alone and having that sense of being out there by yourself, making those connections so powerfully and really becoming friends with the landscape, getting to know the plants, uh, expecting the animals that you might see and just smiling when they turn up and you think they they should. And uh, it's that, that personal relationship that George talked about that you build through time. You know, I wrote about these connections in, in the geography of childhood where we we do make our connections with nature when we're young, and they play out. And I think that that actually feeds right back into the politics of, of land and public lands, because so many of us have those connections that we build on when we're young, and then we go out into the world and develop other kinds of values. You know, we decide that the best way to get to those places is by motorized vehicle, maybe, rather than by horse or foot, and that leads to fights about access for motorized vehicles. And it is the very best thing we can possibly do is, is to get back to recognizing the common ground that we've got, that we built individually, person by person, place by place. And I think the solution to a lot of those fights over public policy is to get everybody back to the place, get them out on the landscape. You know, just this morning there was an article in the Salt Lake Tribune about a proposed development on the Jordan River. And... Um, you know, people were screaming at each other in the meeting, but I think if they'd held the meeting in the place, they would have been a lot better off. Unfortunately, there was, the development was approved by the city council in what looks like, uh, you know, in opposition to, to public sentiment for one of the last great open spaces along the Jordan River right here in the Salt Lake Valley. So everything we've said about personal connection to the landscape is incredibly important. And then you take that as fuel when you go out into the world to talk about the big issues you know, uh, climate change, what to do about public lands in Utah, you know, how to how to stop our dependence on big oil. You know, those are such huge issues that you have to take the passion that Janet talked about developing and living in a place like Escalante and feeling that it's threatened and take it out with you when you move into the world of those those gigantic issues that are so hard to move. Let's... Uh... I don't want to neglect uh, some some passages from your works, and uh, maybe we could start with you, uh, Stephen Trimble. Um, uh, well, what have you selected to read for us? Uh, sure, I'd, I'd be delighted to read a little bit of the op-ed I'm working on. So this is a draft of the ideas that, that we're talking about this morning and the ideas that I want to see if I can articulate a little more clearly and submit for publication to a newspaper or a magazine and get other people thinking about these ideas. Uh, what triggered this for me is that we're celebrating a lot of anniversaries. Last year was the 30th anniversary of the endangered, excuse me, the 40th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act and the 30th anniversary of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. And this year is the um, anniversary of the Wilderness Act. So here are some thoughts about those things. We cherish our remaining wild country in Utah and in every landscape on the planet, and these lands deserve our passion. But these places were never pristine. They've seen millennia of management and manipulation by humans. Climate change 
shifts the boundaries of plant communities. Delicate habitats will disappear entirely. Just what shifting baseline do we work to preserve? Wilderness is a slippery term. I say this just as we enter the 50th anniversary year of the Wilderness Act itself. To mark the occasion, I'm co-judging a photo exhibit on Wild Utah. I believe we need wildness for our sanity, for our humanity. I co-wrote a book with the subtitle, Why Children Need Wild Places. I've grown up and grown old with a cohort of wilderness pilgrims. Ever since I came of age in the environmental awakening of the 1970s, I've been writing letters to federal agencies, testifying in hearings, steadfastly maintaining my memberships in 30 national and local environmental organizations, and writing about our relationship to wild country. That relationship matters. To maintain our opportunity for that intimate experience with the earth and its creatures, we must attend both participants in the relationship, wildland and wild creatures, and the chance for humans to fall in love with that land. How much solitude and remoteness qualifies land as wilderness? I recently hiked through a superb side canyon in Zion National Park, 12 miles, 80 permits a day. My friends and I were alone for long stretches, then overtaken by groups of young technical canyoneers, then by Boy Scout troops. We joined the main canyon of the Virgin River, where folks can hike up a couple of miles into the Zion Narrows. And here, hundreds of people, all kinds of people, in crocs and flip-flops, weighted slack-jawed into a canyon with 2,000-foot walls. It's all wilderness, capital W wilderness, designated by Congress under the Wilderness Act. And here I am with hundreds of people experiencing wilderness. We're all giddy, but we're sure not alone. My beloved wilderness activist groups have to fight powerful forces of development year after year. Those forces of capitalism are implacable. It's easy to forget that we can't win an argument to preserve land for purely ecological reasons when our greediest opponents don't care, our children are distracted by their technology, and our age mates are worried about keeping their jobs. Millennials don't join conservation groups. They rally for causes, moment to moment, cause to cause, and then they move on. At the same time, we can't write off the value of nature to our psychological and physical well-being. Climate change won't just kill polar bears, but people, too. Without experiencing wildness and wild animals, what will humans become? What will humans lose? The conservation world is grappling with these issues. That's Stephen Trimble from a forthcoming op-ed piece that you'll you'll be seeing. Remember, you heard it here first. Uh, Stephen Trimble uh, joins us for Earth Day. We're reflecting on the earth, the land, the environment with Stephen Trimble and George Handley and Jana Richman. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, some passages from Jana Richman and uh, George Handley, and uh, I hope from you as well, if you have reflection on your favorite landscape and uh, maybe general reflections on Earth Day. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. With the rise in the oil and gas industry, communities are growing and local economies are booming. We want to hear your stories about living with oil and gas in Utah and surrounding areas. Let us know how the boom is affecting your family, your community, and your local job or business. Tell us what's on your mind when the oil and gas are just down the street. To share your experience, join our public insight network. Visit upr.org and then click on Become a Source. 
On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, when people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Weekend afternoons at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a ham and cheese demi baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have another 12 minutes or so in the program today. We're uh, reflecting on the Earth, the landscape, the environment for Earth Day 2014. We're talking with Jana Richman, Stephen Trimble, and George Handley. And we're hearing passages from their works. We'd love to hear from you as well. If you have a general reflection on Earth Day, it could be poetic or political. Or uh, we're asking you as well, what's your favorite landscape and why? What does it do for you? The number is 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear from you, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Before we hear a couple of passages from uh, George Handley and uh, Jana Richmond, uh, George Handley, I wanted to follow up with uh, something in uh, Stephen Trimble's op-ed piece there, um, and I'm following up with you because I know you work with uh, students, and in fact, I'm reading here your advisor to the student club there at uh, BYU Eco Response. Uh, Stephen Trimble uh, mentioned the fact that millennials don't tend to join organizations. They tend to rally to causes and then move on to the next cause. I wonder if you see that as well, and, and, and if so, does that cause you concern about the next generation of conservationists? Uh, that's, that's an interesting... I mean, I probably see the students at such a short window of their lives, you know, for three or four years that I, I don't I don't know that I can trace uh, trace that pattern that he's described, but that that is concerning to me. Um, but I, I, I see um, increasing levels of concern among students about environmental issues, um, and and that's the most that's the main thing I think, and I think that's the most positive development um, because I, I think you know to a large degree it depends on their engagement. Um, that is to say, you know, the meaning of something like Earth Day and, and sustainability of, of our planet depend on, on the, the future generations. But I've, I've never had uh, more optimism about the, the students, at least that I encounter at BYU in this generation, than I do now. I just I find them very responsive, um, very concerned and proactive in the way that they respond um, to their education when they learn about problems and they um, they commit themselves to understanding their complexity and, and, and extent, then, then I think they really um, feel empowered um, in, in the right kind of way. I do have, uh, you know, I do think it's a concern if, if people think of the environment as a series of um, kind of isolated battles. I, I think there's a, a, a major cultural shift and a major, you know, worldview shift that's also required of us at this point in time. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm always encouraged to see students who not only get 
concerned about a specific issue, but but understand that their whole life needs to be you know sort of devoted in a in a way to living well, right? And 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 making a difference in the world on on many different levels. I think that's that's what it that it what it requires at this point. And I and I think I see that happening. Mm. Another another caller, uh, Susan in Midway. Uh, Susan, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you. I, I would like to ask your guests. I mean, in 1970, we had one in 10 people out for Earth Day. What is it going to take to get one in 10 now to be really active, or one in five, or one in two, so that we can make the changes necessary? Uh, uh, anyone who wants to uh, respond to that, just uh, jump in. Well, I, I think I would just take a good right? Maybe follow up on my rally people. I'm uh, is this, ahead, George, yeah, go go ahead, George. Yeah. I was just going to follow up on my earlier comment. I think, uh, at least in my context, I mean, we were talking earlier about the power of, of the humanities, about the arts, and how they can affect that kind of change. And I think what, students that when I teach them and can have their sustained attention, now I have the privilege of having them for 15 weeks, you know, and I can talk to them at length, and make them, <laughs> at the threat of a bad grade, read things that they otherwise wouldn't read. But I find that when they read and when they discuss with one another and they think about the narratives of their culture, both the religious narratives of, of their own culture, but also the, the, the poetry and the novels and, and the films and the storytelling that are around them, then then that really engages them in a way that, that almost nothing else can. Um, if you come at somebody first with a political, um, you know, instrument in your hand, or you come at them with politics first, I think they, they tend to um, polarize a little bit more, or at least they hold back in, in a kind of uh, worried, uh, you know, waiting position. But I think if they... Um, if something speaks to their heart and their soul, uh, then they, they respond to that. And I think the arts and religious uh, principles are, are very effective ways to, to do that. Stephen Trimble, I believe you had a comment on this as well. Well, I think democracy is crisis-driven, so you've got to have people riled. You know, it, it's a little bit like what riled Jana down in Escalante this year. And once they're riled, they get out on the streets and they make noise and the political world responds. Susan, uh, thanks for the question. Um, and then uh, she she's gone. Appreciate that. Uh, let's uh, let's turn to uh, Jenna Richmond. Uh, do, do you have a, a passage uh, that you'll read for us? Uh, yes, I I uh, like Steve. I'm going to read something that I'm currently working on. I'm working on a collection of essays, and this this particular essay came about. Um, uh, a while back, when the when our mayor um, spoke uh, in a congressional hearing about um, the how the monument was formed and and the detriments of the monument to the town, and each day when I walk um, to the post office, I I pass my neighbor's house and and his pickup truck, which has a popular bumper sticker on the back of it, which is "Wilderness, the land of no use." So. This essay is kind of in response to that, um, so I'll just read a short passage of that. And this is this I wrote this after my husband and I took a hike out in the Kaparowitz Plateau. 
there in the Box Canyon at the Kaparowitz, I felt deeply something I had only intellectualized before. I knew exactly what we had sacrificed in our zeal to use the land. We've sacrificed the instinctive human, the natural human, the animal human. In doing so, we have sanctioned a painfully slow and ugly death for ourselves, and there's some part of each one of us that knows the truth of this. I'm not a person who rushes to join many causes, but I have pondered the question, what matters enough to me to sacrifice what I have? I found my answer that day on the Kaparowitz Plateau. I would fight the destruction, the tearing apart of this powerful place. There are many arguments for leaving the heavily fossilized and geologically rich plateau undisturbed. It can teach us and has taught us much about our history. But I'm arguing for its protection on a level that cannot be measured in scholarly study, in scientific findings, in dinosaur bones, in dollars, in jobs, or in uses. I'm arguing for something that cannot be measured by any standard generally accepted in our society. I'm arguing for its protection on a spiritual level. I fear that we are several generations past the human animal now, a fact that some find comforting. I do not. I realize that some who visit the Kaparowitz Plateau and see fine black silt oozing from the rock will feel nothing more than a sense of wasted opportunity. But left alone, the Kaparowitz Plateau has the capacity to ignite a profound shift in consciousness has the ability to locate immediate knowledge in the gut. There are damn few places left in the United States holding on to that sort of potency, and we desperately need them. Let's please, for God's sake, for once in our lives, leave something the hell alone and see if we can't find some human value in that. Let the Kaparowitz Plateau be the one experiment in human restraint. And let's see if we can't recapture a little dignity, a little humility, and maybe even a little humanity in the process. Very good. That's, uh, that's Jana Richmond. That's from a, a forthcoming collection of essays? Uh, I hope forthcoming, yeah. yes. Okay, very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> but, but quite recent. Appreciate you reading yes. that. Uh, yes, I'm currently working on them. Yeah. We're talking with uh, George Handley. Uh, Jana Richmond and Stephen Trimble in the program today. We just have a few minutes uh, left, and we're going to have George Handley read us uh, a passage as well. I want to get this uh, comment in from uh, Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona area. Um, Steve says, this is for, by email, he says, You have on the air this morning guests who have lived both in the verdant east and the arid west and who prefer the west. I lived most of my life in New England, Middle Atlantic, and Western Europe, and it was only in my mid-50s that I moved to the dry west. After eight years, the landscape still feels exotic, not entirely natural. And yet when I travel back east, the eye-popping greenness of it all no longer seems entirely natural either. But just to add another perspective to the mix, in my heart of hearts, I believe I do prefer the babbling brooks, the shorelines, and the closed green landscapes of eastern North America to the canyons and wide-open landscapes of the west. That's uh, Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. Thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate that. I wonder, uh, George Handley, what does that resonate with you? You grew up in the verdant east, lived out west, of course. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting yeah, that he I, says he, it, the, the, he doesn't feel it completely natural here in the arid west, but when he goes back now, that doesn't feel completely natural to him either. 
Well, I think of I think of uh, loving landscapes as you know, there's there's no infidelity in loving too many landscapes. So I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing that there are, there's a different there's a different way of orienting yourself to the world in a place like the East uh, as compared to the West. And I've been to places in, in tropical areas in Latin America and South America in Central and South America that have. Uh, been life changing as well. I, I I find that fascinating, and that's that's sort of the the deeper spiritual value of connecting to landscape in general. I think, you know, I think it's it's not a very healthy argument, to, and I don't think this is what the 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 author intends. But it wouldn't be a healthy argument to try to, you know, convince other people that my landscape is better than your landscape. Uh, I think it's wonderful that we, there's so much variety on the earth, and I think that's that's something that we should relish and take pleasure in, that diversity is part of what gives makes life possible. It's also what makes it beautiful. And I think that it's uh, it's it's a good thing. Steve's had a, a variety of experiences, so that's a uh, bad perspective. I wonder if we could have you read a passage, uh, George Handley. Sure. Uh, this is from my book, Home Waters, and, and it's uh, just a, a passage where I'm at a cabin, in a family cabin up near Woodland, Utah. Today the water runs like silk past the cabin, and the aspens display their changes unevenly, some more like lime green and some prematurely brown, but plenty in full naked yellow, sending reflections in all directions and making the, even the ground glow. I am not one to believe in the radical need for disavowing all modern life, but here at least it seems that the veil of the world is thinner, and I am always yearning to push through the surface of what I see, to feel a hand on the other side. Might not the angels also wish for the same, to reach back into us, to feel the pulse of our blood, and to feel the swirling of the earth's breath around them, to veil their minds again with the blue sky and green canopies of trees that are our home? Yes, I think they envy us. I am with Robert Frost. Earth's the right place for love. Or with Rilke, here thine is terlich. To be here is glorious. It is an old and tired argument that religion is for those who can't face the reality of death. Ever since my brother took his own life, the most paradoxical gift my belief in life after death seems to have afforded me is a penchant for weeping at the transience of beauty. Whoever thought that the idea of eternal life meant we could disparage this fleshly life, never finished the hard work of belief. It seems to me that when my son Sam announced one day upon entering my bedroom, I want to be an animal, he was expressing the spirit's unique impulse to explore the dimensions of physical experience. Which kind, I asked? A lizard, a fish, and a bird. When pressed for his reasons, he was equally deliberate and forthcoming. To be fast, to swim, and to fly. Precisely because the life of the body is so thoroughly enjoyable, it surprises me just how often I crave the chances to be startled by those small discoveries that I am something more than just flesh and bone. Emily Dickinson was right. Doubting keeps belief nimble, and doubting the ultimate reality of my biology seems only to intensify the simple pleasures of the flesh, which is why I am drawn to this place at the side of a river in the mountains. I must at least admit this to myself. Earth is an odd place to find myself, and the oddness of it is precisely what makes it so intoxicating. This is a one-time affair, never to be repeated again, and I want all of it. Children pulsating and growing in my arms, this aspen half-dressed in yellow, with that dead black branch extending itself into the air for no one, 
this compost with its nuggets of pine tar under these feet here now. Even without Moses striking the rock, God's hot pebbles on human lips or stones illuminated by his fingers' touch, who can miss the earth's glow? That's George Handley from his uh, book, Home Waters. And we'll have to end it there. We're out of time. Uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. This could have been a two- or three-hour discussion. We'll, we'll have to return to this, of course. Uh, George Handley, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Janet Richmond, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, Stephen Trimble, thanks so much. I was delighted to talk with all of you. Thank you for having us. And uh, join us, of course, uh, tomorrow for Access Utah. For producers uh, Bennett Purser and Katie Swain, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Richard Ratliff. In my last commentary, I spoke to an article in The Economist newspaper entitled, What's Gone Wrong with Democracy? That article reported serious problems in democracies young and old around the world. The question was, is democracy inadequate as a form of government? I urged listeners not to blame democracy for these problems. The blame lies in stony ground where government is planted, any government. This stony ground is the underlying corrupt, immoral, and selfish attitudes and institutions of society, all reported in The Economist. The form of government cannot cure such problems. The cure must come from more fertile ground in which to plant and grow government, any government, especially a democracy. The rise of the British Empire is an example. In 17th century England, the crown made a habit of abusing its relationships with Parliament, the courts, and the wealthy aristocracy to raise funds for its own purposes according to its own whim. Parliament had little voice in government and courts little real authority. The nation struggled. Eventually, the aristocracy formed extensive institutional reform, strengthening the role of Parliament and the courts, protecting property rights, requiring free elections, and enforcing contracts involving the Crown. These revised institutions improved respect for the law and the integrity of governmental relationships. It also greatly improved the fortunes of the nation. The new institutions forced the Crown, Parliament, and aristocracy to honor the rights, responsibilities, and welfare of each other. Everyone prospered. The law won out to the benefit of all concerned, and it became clear that one's own welfare depended upon the welfare of others. Then England became Great Britain and the strongest nation on earth. This is a story of improved relationships. Human society fosters relationships. Indeed, the term society has no meaning without relationships. A healthy society comprises healthy relationships grounded in mutual respect and mutual trust, the fertile ground where good government can flourish. So how can we nurture the soil of good society and government? Build better relationships. Notice two critical elements from 17th century England. The first is known as the rule of law. The rule of law is a general agreement among members of a community to respect the law as their highest governing authority. Young and old, rich and poor, strong and weak, all agree to this basic precept. Social, political, and economic order soon follow. Law is necessary to effective human society. Members of society must respect the law as the ultimate authority of political, social, and commercial intercourse. 
The second ingredient of fertile ground for good society and government is a general attitude of goodwill. We must get along together, seek our mutual welfare, and resolve differences for the common greater good, striving to minimize and compensate any penalties or harm that may occur. Without goodwill, society is in danger, even in the presence of strong law. Ill will causes power struggles where each seeks his own at the expense of others. To have our way at whatever cost to others fosters fear, selfishness, immorality, and corruption in society and its government at a high cost. On the other hand, mutual goodwill fosters social order, prosperity, and happiness. What's wrong with democracy? Nothing. The culprit lies in the unfortunate attitudes and institutions of society, where the rule of law and goodwill together form a fertile ground of mutual respect and trust, democracy and the nation will thrive. Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.